In the fiction of C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion and the little girl Lucy, they meet after a long time apart. Aslan greets her. Welcome, my child. Aslan, you're bigger, says Lucy. That's because you are older, little one. And then she asks, not because you are? Aslan responds, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And this is what happens as we grow in our faith. We discover that our Lord Jesus is bigger than we imagined. As we grow in Christ, we discover that Jesus is far bigger than we ever thought. Our concept of his greatness and his glory expands and deepens. We learn to see him as bigger and better. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. The writer explains how Jesus is greater than Judaism. He wants us to be proud of Jesus. He is better than all that had come before. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel that included a priesthood and a temple. But Jesus eclipsed both the Levitical priesthood and the temple in Jerusalem. He is a priest of a different order of Melchizedek, we've learned. And he works in a better temple in heaven itself. At the end of chapter 8, we learn how that Jesus even cuts a better covenant with better promises. And now in chapter 9, we learn how that he offers a better sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 begins with a layout of the temple, actually of the tabernacle, the temple's predecessor, the place of sacrifice for the Jews. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then the author writes, Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And my reaction is, why not? What a bummer. This goes down as the greatest Bible study that never was. In fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to chase down the author of Hebrews and demand the rest of the story. A breakdown of these verses would have been fabulous. Remember, the tabernacle was the tent where the Old Testament Hebrews were required to worship God. Moses received blueprints for its construction on Mount Sinai. Its sacrificial altar was in the court outside the tent, while the tent itself was divided into two areas. The first contained the lamp, or the menorah, a table of fresh bread, and a censer that sent smoke behind the veil. Behind the dividing veil was the tabernacle's inner sanctum, in which sat the sacred ark, a two-foot by four-foot box over which hovered the very glory of God. The ark was God's throne on earth in his meeting place with Israel. And the ark held three important relics. 
a jar of the mysterious manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted almond blossoms and identified him as high priest, and the two stone tablets on which God wrote his top ten commandments. The ark was the shadow box of all shadow boxes. It foreshadowed spiritual realities. Everything about the earthly tabernacle cast a light on New Testament truths. In Hebrews 8 verse 5, the author told us that the tabernacle was actually a small-scale replica of heaven itself. And so much of its symbolism foreshadowed Jesus. The New Testament opens, in fact, with this analogy. John introduces Jesus in chapter 1 verse 14 of his gospel. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally, tabernacled among us. The Old Testament tabernacle was a perfect picture of Jesus. And wouldn't you have liked to know how? That's why Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 is the greatest Bible study that never was. Oh, we can fill in the blanks and pose our conjectures, but it would have been intriguing to have read it from the writer under divine inspiration. And yet the author tells us he has to move on to more pressing matters. Rather than focus on the tabernacle and its sacrifices, his goal is to describe how the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross eclipsed the other sacrifices in its effectiveness. Verse 6 tells us, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. The Old Testament limited access to the tabernacle and thus to God. The people couldn't come into the tabernacle at all. They had to stop at the outside altar with their sacrifice. The priest could enter the first room, the holy place, but it was only the high priest who had access into the very presence of God. Verse 7 tells us, But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Only one man could enter God's glory, and only once a year. And when he entered, he didn't dare come empty-handed. He came with the blood of a sacrificial lamb. For it was not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Over the years, a river of blood flowed from the Jewish altar. Yet all that blood gained was only a limited access to God. The endless repetition of the sacrifices highlighted its inadequacy. You see, Judaism was a religion primarily ceremonial. Verse 9 states, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. You see, the Jewish law spoke symbolically of higher realities, but it had no real effect on a person's inner life. Verse 10 tells us why. The law was concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Tabernacle worship involved outward superficial rituals, regarding diet and hygiene, but it didn't affect the soul. Hand washing protects us from the coronavirus. 
But it doesn't disinfect our sin. It doesn't cleanse our sick soul. It's the same principle. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Rather than symbolic or ceremonial, Jesus' work was eternal, dealing with the good things to come, we're told, and spiritual, impacting our very status in heaven. And the sacrifice of Jesus makes, verse 12, the sacrifice he makes is not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You know, you measure the potency of a cleanser by the number of applications it requires. And the same was true of sacrificial blood. The Old Testament sacrifices were repeated annually, continually. But Jesus offered his blood once and for all. His sacrifice needed, never needed to be duplicated or reapplied. The blood of animals covered our sin for a time. They earned for us a temporary probation. But Jesus provides our permanent pardon. And then verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh... How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Here the author mentions Numbers 19 and the ashes of the heifer. This was the way the old covenant was dedicated. A red heifer was sacrificed and its ashes were mixed with water. A hyssop or a leafy twig was then dipped into the ashy mixture and it was sprinkled on all that was being dedicated, the priest and the people and the furniture and the tabernacle. And this was all a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus and its spiritual effect. For on the cross, Jesus spilt his blood for us. Now its effects are mixed with the water of God's spirit and they're sprinkled on those of us who believe. This is far more than ceremonial. It cleanses our conscience and qualifies us to serve the living God, the writer tells us. Some of you former Methodists will be happy to know we're cleansed by sprinkling. We've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Once Good Morning America interviewed Albert Speer, a former Nazi, Speer was the industrial genius that kept Hitler's factories running and buzzing during World War II. He was the only one of 24 war criminals tried at Nuremberg to admit his guilt. Speer was sentenced and imprisoned for two decades. And he was remorseful to the very end. In fact, Speer said in the interview, I was jailed 20 years, but I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people. I can't get rid of it. Sadly, that was Albert Speer's last public statement. He could never rid himself of his guilt and shame. None of us can. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse the guilty conscience of an Albert Speer or yours. Verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance 
For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. You know, we talk about the old and new covenants as testaments. For in a sense, that's what they are, last will and testament. And death activates their promises. Say your old rich Uncle Bob promised you his boat and house and stocks and bonds and everything he had. Well, until the day he dies, you don't get a dime. And likewise, God's redemption, even for those who died before Jesus, had to wait. The effects of the testament aren't released until the testator dies. Thus, before Jesus, God's promises were unattainable. They were tied up in probate, you could say. But now, they're released to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's through his cross that God's many blessings are now experienced by his people. That was a truth that made these Hebrews Jesus followers. And then verse 18 reads, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. When Moses launched the old covenant, he dedicated everything with the sprinkling of blood, the tabernacle, its furniture, the law, even the people. The point being, the covenant was a bloody affair from its outset. And all this blood and gore emphasized to Israel the seriousness of their sin. Because of what they did, their sin, a lamb from their flock was taken and its throat slit. Imagine taking your household pet, putting little Rover on a leash, and taking him down to the priest, who then pulled out his knife and slaughtered your little pet because of the stupid stuff you've done. Boy, if that happened to you, you'd see sin in a whole new light, wouldn't you? You'd see sin as a serious crime that deserved a severe penalty. Well, we're told here, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. See, this was the law's primary premise. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Sin is a serious crime that requires the shedding of blood. You know, take our places of worship today. You walk into a church building, well, when you can. And you find it clean, it's sanitary, it's spotless. But if you walked into the Old Testament tabernacle, man, it looked and smelled like a beef cattle slaughterhouse or maybe a meat market. The job of the priest was like that of a butcher. One author writes, The Old Testament sacrificial system was a gory affair indeed. During the thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices so considering that each bull's sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each goat a quart, the old covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. 
In fact, during the Passover, a ditch was dug from the temple into the Kidron Valley just to channel off all the blood. It was a sacrificial drain pipe. Leviticus 17 verse 11 tells us clearly, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God told Adam and Eve that the wages of sin was death. Since the nutrients of life flow to the rest of the body through the bloodstream, Biblical reasoning demands that the debt of sin requires the spilling of blood. Of course, this is where some liberal theologians ridicule and criticize Christianity. They call it a slaughterhouse faith or a bloody religion. The necessity of blood offends their modern sensibilities. They consider it barbaric. Well, I have one response to that. So what? It doesn't matter what some theologian thinks. If God is doing the forgiven, then he's the one who sets the terms of the forgiveness. And he's told us unequivocally, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. People who try to eliminate the cross or clean up the gore or sanitize Christianity, strip it of its power. You remember in Revelation 5 when John visits heaven He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. It's interesting to me, Jesus, the Lamb of God, will bear the marks of crucifixion for all eternity. To negate the importance of his blood is to insult our Savior. As the hymn writer put it, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The only cure for a guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus. And then verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Moses dedicated the replica of God's throne, the tabernacle with the blood of bulls, but heaven itself was dedicated with Jesus' own blood. Now that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now... Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Jewish priest offered multiple sacrifices. He offered sacrifices annually, but Jesus offered himself but once. This is why we as Protestants reject the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the belief that the wafer and the wine of communion turn into the literal body and blood of Christ when offered. If so, Jesus is sacrificed again and again. God forbid! The writer of Hebrews says he was sacrificed once. On the cross, all that needed to be done for our salvation was done, and it was done once and for all. And so, verse 27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, 
But after this, the judgment. Notice here the Bible refutes reincarnation. You don't return in another form. When I die, I meet my maker. And I give an account of my life. There are no do-overs. There are no second chances here. Upon death, don't expect to see long tunnels and bright lights. The author C.S. Lewis tells us what to expect the moment we die. He writes, there will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it is impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when you discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. Hear it again. You die, then it's the judgment. And then verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. When he comes again, it won't be to add anything to our salvation. It'll be to enforce what he's already done. And then chapter 10 tells us, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. Let's say I was away on a long trip, gone from the house three weeks. And the first night back, my wife Kathy makes me a romantic dinner. Yet instead of joining her in the dining room, What if I were to walk over and take her picture off the wall and start kissing her picture, start talking to her photo while the real Kathy Adams was sitting at the table? You'd classify me a certifiable nut. Yet this is what the Hebrew believers were doing by returning to the sacrifices and traditions of Judaism. They were embracing the shadows and the symbols and the pictures while ignoring the substance. They were acting nutty. Verse 2, for the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. If the Old Testament sacrifices had truly eradicated sin, then they wouldn't need to be repeated. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices utterly failed in producing a lasting resolution for our sin. But there was a solution born in Bethlehem. You know, usually at Christmas time, when we recall Jesus' birth, we go to the Gospel of Matthew to read of Joseph and the wise men, or to Luke to read of Mary and the shepherds. We don't think to turn to Hebrews, but we should. For in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, we find the most vital 
yet overlooked scene in the Christmas narrative. Here was Jesus' parting statement to his father just before he left his eternal home for his embryonic home. Verse 5. Therefore, when Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. For centuries, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, watched the Father in heaven. The Father would receive sacrifices, but they produced in Him no satisfaction. There was a reluctance in His acceptance. The look in His eye indicated it was not quite right. The animals being offered were tainted with sin themselves. All creation had been affected by the fall of mankind. The Father understood that only a sinless sacrifice, untainted blood, could at the same time sanitize a sin-stained world and satisfy a sinless God. But where would God go for such a sinless sacrifice? That's when His only Son, His eternal Son, stepped up and volunteered Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Realize spirit doesn't pierce. Spirit doesn't bruise or bleed. Jesus needed a body for the mission he'd been assigned. For Jesus was born to die. Think of it. God became a man so he could take a nail for you. Verse 7. Then I said, and Jesus is now quoting Psalm 40, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. On every page of Scripture, buried in every ritual, seen in every sacrifice, there was a prophetic portrait of the person and work of Jesus. And when it came time for him to lay down his life, he was obedient to the will of God. Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burn offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. But then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. God took no pleasure in the blood of animals. What satisfied the Father's sense of justice was the sinless life and the spotless sacrifice of his son Jesus. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You know, for a thousand years, the Levitical priests repeated the same temple rituals every day. For Jews in Jerusalem, the sights and the smells and the sounds of the temple were as familiar as the sunrise and the sunset. Yet in just a few years after the penning of this book, the Roman legion invaded Jerusalem, 70 A.D., and burned the temple to the ground, putting an end to all the sacrifices. You see, following Jesus' sacrifice, God ended the temple operation. It was now obsolete. It was irrelevant. Once the ultimate sacrifice was made, who needed the shadow? 
But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Once Jesus completed the job of atoning for our sin, he sat down at God's right hand. The right hand was a position of honor. And today, Jesus is still there. He's waiting for the time when God defeats all his enemies and puts them under his feet. You know, it's interesting. The Old Testament priest never sat down. There was furniture in the Old Testament holy place, but there was no chair The priest was in perpetual motion, always on his feet, for under the law, his work was never finished. Yet when Jesus offered his sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus completed the work of redemption once and for all, a job well done. That's when he sat next to the Father to await his exaltation. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. In Christ before God, the work of our acceptance is finished. It's a done deal. We are perfected forever. And in us, before others, God's Spirit is at work, deepening our dedication. We are being sanctified. Both are true. Spiritually and eternally, the work is finished, while mentally and practically, we're a work in progress. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. See, the Hebrew believers who received this letter, as well as all believers today, were involved in a new covenant. A new covenant in which God has given us three things. A new heart, a new start, and a new part. God's Spirit now has written His will on our hearts. We're given a new heart. One that loves God and loves others. We also get a new start. A clean slate. What God forgives, He forgets. And we have a new part. Faith in Jesus has now taken the place of these Old Testament Animal sacrifices. Verse 18 tells us, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now that Jesus has forgiven us, there is no need to offer another sacrifice. The Hebrew believers needed to hear that. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil That is his flesh. Remember, the tabernacle had a veil of separation. It was a huge curtain that hung in front of the Holy of Holies. And it was a reminder that God was off limits to sinful men. Yet the moment Jesus died, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the veil tore from top to bottom. The way to God is now open. And thus today, the veil between God and man, what separates us from God, is the torn body of Jesus Christ. You come to God not by jumping through religious hoops or doing a lot of good deeds, but you come to God over His dead body. Believe in Jesus and the door to God opens. 
Verse 21 tells us, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. In Christ, we now have access to God. So how should we respond? Well, he gives us three commands. I call them the salad commands because they begin, let us, let us, let us. And I can hear the laughter coming through the streets. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Since Jesus has opened the door to God, what are we waiting on? Let's enter in. Let's spend time with Him. One of the great Christian catechisms states is our duty to know God and enjoy Him forever. That's our duty. Hey, let's draw near. Let's enter into His presence. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Hey, if we've been given a lifeline to God, then hold on. Hold on tight for all your worth. Don't waver or drift. Continue in your faith, for God is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Let's enter in, let's hold on, and let's stir up each other to godliness. Let's hang out with God, let's hold on to God, and let's do it together. See, my faith fuels your faith, and vice versa. And at a time when we're all being asked to social distance ourselves to fight the coronavirus, the command to not forsake our assembling together requires some creativity. Thankfully, we're able to live stream our services, have them online. And on Good Friday, we're taking a further step and we're having online communion. But don't wait on us. We need to develop our own connections. In the last days and in troubling times, it's vital for all of us to find good fellowship. And then verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Now here, the sin in view is not a simple slip-up. We're not talking here about a foul word in the heat of battle or a beer too many or an outburst of anger. This is the same sin that we've dealt with throughout the book of Hebrews. It's the sin of deliberately denying the superiority of Jesus. See, the temptation for these Hebrews was to abandon Christ and trust again in the institutions of Judaism. And the writer here assures them that since salvation comes by faith, if they stop having faith in Jesus, it's impossible for them to be saved. He says, if we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Turn your back on Jesus, God's only answer, and how can you be saved? Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be he who thought worthy, who was trampled, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. The law of Moses. For a chapter and a half now, we've heard that it's the inferior covenant. And yet it had serious consequences if you rejected its terms. How much worse will your fate be if you reject the superior covenant and insult Christ? To say a person can be right with God by good deeds or religious rituals is to render the precious blood of Jesus irrelevant. You can be saved by your own works. Why did Jesus die? You insult the spirit of his grace. You make a mockery of the cross of Jesus if you return to the teachings of of Judaism. In verse 30, the author of Hebrews quotes twice from Deuteronomy 32. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In other words, God is not afraid to judge. So take heed. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a God of mercy and grace. But if you reject his only son, if you callously trample the son he sent to die in your place, there is no punishment too harsh for you. Verse 32 But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven." See, shortly after they had come to Christ, the Hebrews had been hassled for their faith, even to the point of having their possessions confiscated. See, they'd probably been excommunicated by their Jewish families and forced to return inheritances and keepsakes, and yet they continued in their faith. Every Christian experiences times when their faith offers them no real worldly advantage. Instead of making you rich, it causes you loss. Instead of popularity, it draws persecution. Instead of promotion, you get put down. And in those times, you need to hunker down. We're told we'll receive a great reward, an eternal reward no less, if we don't lose heart and hold fast to our faith in Jesus. The writer exhorts them, verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. And you see, losing their confidence in Christ was not just a theoretical threat. It was a very real possibility. You know, in John 10, verse 28, Jesus made a promise that I believe is often misinterpreted. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. It's true. No one can snatch us from Jesus' hand. But that doesn't mean that a believer can't get up and walk out. You have to continue in in your faith. Author G.K. Chesterton used to say, 
The only way to love anything is to realize it can be lost. And that's especially true of God's blessings and of our salvation. I believe it's naive to teach that just because you made a decision for Christ at some point in your past, there's now nothing you can do to jeopardize your salvation. That's not only wrong, it breeds a false sense of security. We should be encouraging perseverance. Verse 36 tells us, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Jesus is coming again, but a wait is involved. You see, there's always a lag time between the giving and receiving of a promise. Thus, believing is not enough. You have to continue to believe. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is tough talk from the writer of Hebrews. Draw away from faith and you're no longer pleasing to God. He has no pleasure in him. The just, those who are right with God, are because they live by faith. Thus, they have to continue in that faith. They live by faith. They didn't just have faith. They live by faith. And the tough talk isn't over. He says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, literally damnation, ruin, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Stop having faith and you're stumbling toward hell. That's what the writer tells us. To be saved by faith, we have to continue in faith. Hey, in Christ, we have a better way, a new and living way. So let's enter in. Let's hold on and let's stir up one another. Hold fast to your faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you.